Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's Christmas time. And of course, this is the time when all the world gets sentimental. No, you heard me right. Santa-mental. <laughs> Not sentimental. Sentimental, of course, is emotion without commitment. And sentimental is the mentality that people adopt as they look for yet one more way to avoid what the Bible has to say about the coming Savior. It's interesting to me, in the book of Isaiah, we find this beautiful passage. By the way, which three books in the Old Testament do you suppose are the most quoted books by Jesus in the New Testament? If you said Psalms, you would be right. The second most quoted book by Jesus is the book of Deuteronomy. The third most quoted book by Jesus is this book, the book of Isaiah. He will quote this eight times in the New Testament. In the book of Isaiah, beginning in about chapter 7, verse 17, all the way through chapters 8, 9, and then to the middle of chapter 10, the prophet is warning apostate Israel and her wicked king Pekah about the impending doom and the complete ruin that is going to be brought about by the Assyrian kingdom who are going to invade the northern kingdom. A child is going to be born. A sign child. The child is going to be named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Most people don't remember that. His name means speed to the spoil, haste to the prey. His name emphasized the coming ruin of Samaria and Syria in chapter 8, verse 4. And Israel would seek comfort and protection, not from God, not from the God of Israel, not from the God who freed the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, but they were going to see if they could get help from Syria in chapter 8, verse 11 through 15. In other words, they were looking for a way to provide safety and security about, apart from the God of the Bible. Israel wasn't going to return to Jehovah, the refuge, the rock, the strong tower, the deliverer. Isaiah pleads with Israel to return to the law of Moses in chapter 8, verse 20. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, Isaiah gives a second prediction of the coming of Messiah. 
When, Israel, when Assyria would sweep over the northern part of, of the land of Israel in the northern regions, it's going to experience this earth-shaking judgment. But the prophet doesn't just see that time. He peers through time and space into seven centuries into the future when a, when a child is going to be born. And then he seeks sees even further into the future when he predicts that the weapons of warfare are going to be burned as fuel and that this Messiah would one day rule as the prince of peace and the ruler of the world. So why do I call this the Christmas Chronicles? Because the great themes of Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, Bible prophecy, and hope are all contained within this message. When I was preparing this message, it reminded me of a story. Long, long ago, when people used to ride trains, there was this train that was headed out of Denver, and it was headed for California. And the scenery is beautiful between here and there. But there's parts of the scenery that gets pretty monotonous and pretty boring. And a person was peering out the window, and he kept saying, that's so beautiful. That's so amazing. That's so marvelous. That's so incredible. That's so wonderful. And one guy, he couldn't take it anymore. And he said, you know, most of us are about to fall asleep from the dead monotony of this train ride. How can you keep saying this? And he said, up until two weeks ago, I was completely blind. He said, a surgeon came and repaired my eyes. How can you sit there and not be amazed by what you're seeing? And we travel into this season called Christmas. And you hear the songs and you hear the stories and it all seems so ordinary. It all seems so run of the mill. Christmas is impossible without creation and without a fall and without redemption and without reconciliation. J.I. Packer rightly said, quote, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because the Father's will is that Jesus Christ will become poor. He will be born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross, unquote. The Christmas Chronicles began in the Old Testament with the very first prophecy given in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, where a Messiah would be the promised seed of a woman in Genesis 3.15, fulfilled in Luke 2.7, Galatians 4.4. 4. The Messiah would be the seed of Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. The Chronicles revealed that this child would spring from the royal tribe of Judah in Genesis 49.10. Isaiah predicts that the Messiah would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14. The Messiah would bring light to the darkness, Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. Later, Jesus is 
Isaiah is going to predict that the Messiah is going to be called a Nazarene in chapter 11, verse 1. The Spirit's going to rest upon him in a special way in Isaiah 11:2. The Messiah is going to save the Gentiles in 11:10. He's going to conquer death in Isaiah 25:8. He's going to be called the stone in Isaiah 28:16. He's going to do miracles in Isaiah 35:5. He is going to meet the desperate needs of humanity in Isaiah 35 verses 6. How can you not see Christmas? The ninth chapter of Isaiah begins with the cry. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This last Friday, we buried a beloved sister in Christ. And I couldn't help but noticing that many of the people who showed up for her funeral thought that this is the land of the living. But according to Isaiah and according to the Bible, this isn't the land of the living. This is the land of the dying. There is a land of the living. There is a place where you live and you never die. At Christmas, we invite people who have been walking in darkness to see the Savior. I like to think That we invite people all year round to see with new eyes. In Matthew's gospel chapter 4, Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been in prison and, and he and the disciples left for the Galilee. And when Jesus left Nazareth and then stayed in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the region of Zebulon and Naphtali, Matthew writes that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet at the beginning of this chapter, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. He's speaking about this world, the world in which we live. That there would come a day, it would be like as if the sun came up for the first time. And the next verse in Matthew's gospel reads, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who is this light to the Gentiles, as it's spoken of in Luke 2.32? A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Whoever this light is and whatever he has to say, it's going to open up the eyes of the entire world. Jesus Christ is God's great gift to the world. It's really Jesus who is the very definition of giving. Look what it says in verse 6, God's great gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, And the government will be upon his shoulder. The Messiah is human. Look what it says. A child is born. Not a thought. Not an idea. Not a philosophy. Not a religion. A child is born. And look what else it says. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son 
is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. This Messiah is both human and divine. And in a single sentence, our mind is stretched from the virgin birth, the incarnation of deity to the universal governance of Christ as king forever. In that single sentence, it sums up everything. Henry Van Dyke said, quote, The birth of Jesus is the sunrise in the Bible. And that's exactly right. Especially if you've ever been in a dark place, in an empty place, in a hurting place where nothing made sense. Jesus is God's gift to mankind. This week, my wife asked me, What do you want for Christmas? What can I say? The greatest gift has already been given. Would to God that everyone would receive this gift. It's interesting to me. When it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then it goes on and it says, and his name. It's interesting to me that that Hebrew noun is singular. It says, wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, as if it's hyphenated and then hyphenated again and hyphenated again. It's interesting to me also that there are some 256 names given in the Bible to describe our Lord Jesus because there doesn't seem to be a singular name that will sum up all that he is and all that he does. The name was meant to communicate some aspect of his character, some aspects of his nature, of both his will and his work. And so when it says at the end of verse 6, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the name means wonder of a counselor. The term wonderful implies something marvelous, something extraordinary, something beyond the normal, something above the ordinary. It's a description of something that's in a class all of itself. In the ancient world, they had things that were called the wonders of the world. One of those things that survived to this day is called the pyramids of Giza. What's interesting to me is that this word wonderful isn't an adjective. It's a noun. And do you remember when you were in school when the teacher said, what's the difference between a noun and a verb? A noun is a person, place, or thing. So here, it speaks of a person and the work of a person. Counselor speaks of wisdom in that work. And so the prophet's description of this child who is a human child who is also a son that's been given from heaven. It's some sort of being who is both human and divine, who is perfect in advice, whose shoulders will bear an extraordinary wisdom that goes beyond comprehension and governance. Spurgeon said that a doctor who cured 90% of his patients could be called a wonderful doctor. 
An attorney who wins every case would be called the wonder of an attorney. A counselor who gives accurate, useful, helpful, healthy, truthful advice could be called wonderful counselor. My granny was right. She said, advice is like castor oil, easy enough to give, hard to swallow. And she's exactly right. Most people want advice at some point in their life. And of course, good advice is almost always certain to be ignored. But that doesn't mean there's no good reason not to give it. And so the Bible advises us that if you've ever needed advice, to go to the advisor, Jesus. Now, I want you to note something about that very simple expression, wonderful counselor, because it gives us a hint as to who Jesus is. He is both guidance and a guide. Do you understand? Guidance and the guide. You see, it's one thing to say, I need help. I need directions. In the modern age in which we live, if you have a smartphone, all you have to do is just type in the address and it will take you wherever it is that you wanted to go. But imagine if you grew up in my world where you had to literally ask for directions. What would be better for you if the person said, I happen to be going that way. You can follow me. Imagine if someone said to you, how do I get to heaven? And you said, I happen to be going in that direction. Why don't you follow me? You see, Jesus doesn't just give you the directions on how to get to heaven. He is the way to heaven. And the moment that you receive him as your Lord and your Savior, you aren't simply headed for heaven. Heaven is headed for you. Jesus is guide and Jesus is guidance. And if you've ever needed help, if you've ever wanted help, that's where you can go. The wicked kings of Israel and Judah they began to seek counsel from a lot of suspect sources. Isaiah was sent by God to Ahaz, the king of Judah, and he was very young, and he was in the middle of a grave national crisis. The country was right on the very precipice of implosion. They faced two kinds of threats. The first threat was from Assyria in the north, which literally threatened the existence of the country completely. The second threat was internal. There was a moral and a spiritual decline that was so profound and so severe that Isaiah was sent by God to the nation to remind the nation to believe and trust and obey God. But there was also a warning. If the king refused to believe and trust and obey the Lord, almost certainly it was going to precipitate judgment. And so the king was given a choice. Please, believe and trust the Lord. Trust his love, trust his grace, trust his mercy, or face judgment and punishment. 
And you would think that the king would choose to trust the Lord. Just like you think that people today would choose to trust the Lord. You would think that in the midst of so many problems and so many tragedies and so many difficulties and so much darkness and so much emptiness and so much threat in the growing shadow of apostasy and rebellion, Ahaz will push the promises of God aside and he'll seek an alliance with a pagan king. After repeated warnings from the prophet, they would seek counsel from dark sources. The children of Israel and Judah went so far as to seek mediums and wizards. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, it says, Who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. This was Isaiah's way of saying, where are you going in order to get your information? I'm gonna, we're going to have a seance. We're going to call up the dead. What? Yeah, in order to get out of this horrible and terrible situation I'm in, I need a supernatural solution to my problems. Why in the world would you look anywhere other than the person of God and the person of Christ. What happens when a nation abandons godliness and righteousness and truth? What happens when a nation faces growing threats from the outside and internal moral collapse on the inside? Every single person becomes a tiny little picture of the portrait that the Bible is painting when you feel threatened on the outside and when you are hurting on the inside where will you go for help where will you find grace where will you find hope will it be in the words of human beings in the wisdom of men or in the words of Jesus at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the Messiah's way of saying, turn from your sin, turn to God, trust him. The place of the authority of God is about to come upon us. Repeated warnings have been given to those who sit in the shadow of death. In churches all across America and all across the world. People will be invited to change their mind, to trust the Messiah who brings light to the darkness. Those who have resisted and rebelled against God can have their sins forgiven. They can experience joy and victory. And we live in an age of unprecedented information. So many people want to know. So many people want advice. So many people have personal trainers and life coaches. Don't get me wrong. Is it possible that a personal trainer and a life coach could give you healthy advice? Maybe even godly advice. But if you ask people, again, my granny would say, if you ask enough people, almost certainly you can find someone who will say exactly what you want to hear. 
And we're living in a world where if you look long enough and hard enough, you'll find someone who will say, you don't have to trust God. You don't have to believe the Bible. It's interesting to me in Romans eleven thirty four, Paul quotes the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 to answer his own question from Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, verse 34, 11, 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? In fact, Isaiah 40, 13 reads, quote, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who and showed him the way of understanding, unquote? Jesus is the supernatural counselor. Jesus is the one who has the information that you need for what you need inside of your heart, inside of your soul, and for your future. Jesus is our supernatural counselor. I'm flattered when you come to me and you say, I need your advice. Please don't be mad at me if I ask you, have you sought Jesus' advice on this matter? Did you ask the Lord? Have you searched the scriptures to see if these things be so? You see, Jesus is wonderful in his advice. Jesus is wonderful. And the counselor, particularly if you're looking for guidance in your life, may I introduce you to this wonderful counselor. He is exceptional and distinguished and without peer. I always run the risk of giving you the wrong advice. But make no mistake about it, Jesus will never, ever give you the wrong advice. Jesus always gives the right advice, every time, no exceptions. Jesus is wonderful in wisdom. He's wonderful in teaching, wonderful in his birth. How? Remember, how many of you know someone who was born of a virgin? Oh, it's, good. it's comforting to know no hands went up. Because <laughs> I was going to say, see me after the service. Jesus is wonderful in his birth, wonderful in his character. He is wonderful in his claims. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed that God was his father and he receives sinners and he eats with them. He allows sinful people to approach him. He allows the sick to touch him. He gives no evidence of selfishness or self-interest. He is wonderful in his sacrificial death. He is wonderful in his glorious resurrection. He is wonderful in the sum and the substance of all of the wisdom that he has in order to lead and guide and look he's called the mighty God and those two words are breathtaking it means heroic 
strong God. The child is God's son. The child is the mighty God. The child is the son who is given. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the possessor of the nature of God. He possesses a human nature and he possesses the very nature of God. He is eternal. He is self-existent. He is all-powerful. The Lord Jesus is God himself. And again, these two words, mighty God, could serve as the source for every preacher's message in every age throughout all eternity. I can't even begin to pretend to plumb what this statement is saying other than that Jesus is the mighty God. It's interesting to me, most people believe in God. I think it's safe to say that probably 98 out of every 100 people on the planet Earth have some semblance of some idea of some understanding of who, that there is a God. But what kind of a God is this God? The Muslim sees Jesus as God as the unforgivable sin of shirk, ascribing association to God. The Jew sees Jesus as God as blasphemy. The Hindu sees Jesus as divine, but not unique in divinity. So the Hindu will go, if you say, Jesus is God, you are right, brother, Jesus is God. The rock is God, those plants are God, the cow is God. You mean everything is God? Yes. You mean nothing is God? Yes. And then you get lost. The agnostic sees Jesus as God as an unprovable absurdity. The atheist sees Jesus as God as a repulsive, intellectual impossibility. Was the deity of Christ cooked up by some human being? Was it fabricated in the past and then pushed on a group of naive, ignorant people? And then you look at this Jewish prophet's account 700 years before the birth of the Messiah stating his deity in such plain, stark, unambiguous terms. If we dare couple the titles given by Isaiah to this mystery, Messiah, we encounter a person born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.4, a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 9.11, human, Isaiah 9.6, a son from heaven, 9.6, infinite in wisdom, 9.6, mighty God, verse 6, a God-man capable of carrying out his perfect plan, a king so powerful and wonderful that he can absorb evil, forgive sin, reverse the curse, change people from the inside out, and then give them eternal life. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus will say in John 17, verses 2 and 3, 
as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He prays that you will receive and embrace and have eternal life because you know the Father and you know the Son. And look what the very next sentence says. Everlasting Father, or better in the Hebrew, the Father. Like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? No. Father as in the sense of source. Abraham is the father, if you will, of the Semitic peoples in the sense of he is the father to Isaac and he is the father to a, another group of people or Isaac, which his, whose name means laughter. He is the father of Jacob and Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes, if you will, of Israel. And so think about this. It, it, it's suggested that he is father everlasting or we might even better say he is the source of eternity another way we could even say it Jesus makes eternity possible Jesus is eternal Jesus makes possible eternal life for the sinner Jesus imparts eternal life to those who believe him and trust him vine comments quote there's a twofold revelation in this number one he inhabits and possesses eternity. Number two, he is loving, tender, compassionate, an all-wise instructor, trainer, provider. Isaiah 57, 15, quote, For thus says the high and the lofty one. That means go as high as you possibly can. He's higher. Go even further. He's higher. Go as far as you possibly can go. He's further. He is the one who inhabits eternity. In other words, he dwells at the very beginning and in the middle and in the end of all time, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. How is it possible that a God could be so big and so far up and so close to the humble, to the contrite, to the person who is bleak and broken and bitter and lost. If you've ever felt that way, you might be thinking, I don't feel like God is anywhere near me. But according to the Bible, God has never been closer than to the one who has a broken and a contrite heart. And so he's the everlasting father. That's worship and then welcome to the prince of peace. Look what it says. Sar, shalom. His government is one of justice and peace. He is sar, shalom. In the word shalom, it means more than just peace. It means that, but it means so much more. It means that which is broken has now been able to be reconciled and come together. The Bible promises a future world absent war 
absent conflict, absent struggle, our prince will bring lasting peace to a troubled world, but he can also bring lasting peace to a troubled heart. This Sar, Shalom, is more than just a princely title describing his duties in government. I think it becomes the perfect description of who he is as he reconciles us to God. And so the Lord Jesus is greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Elijah, even greater than King David. The Prince of Peace is also the king forever. The Messiah will bring peace to the world, but first... He wants to bring peace to the heart. We still live in a broken world. We still live in a troubled world. It shouldn't surprise you that even in this troubled world, he wants to bring peace to you. To you. In your heart. In your family. In your church. Do you want the raging battle that's going on inside of you to come to a close. The Prince of Peace has come to solve the problem of our alienation from God. You see, the Bible says that we're at war with God, that our sin has caused us to be distant from God. The Lord Jesus is going to achieve his purposes through peaceful means. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus isn't going to manipulate you into a relationship that you don't want. He's not going to trick you into something that you don't want to have any part of. He isn't going to hurt your family or take your wife or kill your children in order to manipulate you into finally confessing your sins and finally being reconciled to God. That's not how Jesus works. He comes gently, personally. And he knocks at the door of your heart. It speaks of a future ruler. Look what it says in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Christmas child is Christ the king forever of the increase of his Rule, that's what it says, government. Here it means to order the, and instruct concerning the way that human beings conduct themselves. And so his government is going to be far-reaching. Human government will collapse and one day give way to the absolute rule of Christ as king. The prophet predicts a government that is Peaceful, eternal, just. How is this even possible? How is this even possible? How is it even possible when you look at the wickedness in the world, when you see the deep divisions that exist on the planet Earth, when you see the constant threats, when you see the darkness and the bitterness and the sect 
segregation and the separation. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God has the power and the ability to make his will ultimately come to pass. His eternal power and commitment to his plan will accomplish it all. And think about this for just a moment. All of a sudden, the miracle of your life seems simple and ordinary compared to the miracle of changing each and every heart. But that's exactly what God wants to do. And in four simple words, we see the panorama of all of human existence. Jesus in creation. Jesus the Savior in the fall. Jesus as reconciler and redeemer. God's matchless plan to give grace to human beings. And I want you to think about this because on, on one side is God's forever plan to bring peace and grace. And on the other side is the human frustration of running from God. Distancing themselves from God. And you will see it all around you. Before the day is over with. You'll talk with people. Who will find ways. To not have to deal with their sin. Who don't want to talk about Jesus. They're running and they're hiding. From grace. God's grace. God's gift. Christmas is the day that holds all time together. I want you to understand something. Christmas did not begin by Constantine in the third century. It wasn't appropriated by well-meaning Christians in order to reverse pagan observations. Christmas began in the heart of God and it is only complete when it reaches the heart of man. Christmas began in the heart of God Christmas is complete when it reaches the heart of man. When it reaches your heart, you won't find Christmas under a tree. You'll find Christmas on a tree. On Calvary's tree. Where Jesus will die for sin. You won't find Christmas in holiday spice. But you can find Christmas in sin's purchased price. John Stott, with perhaps a touch of bah humbug, wrote, quote, The Christian should resemble a fruit tree, not a Christmas tree. For the gaudy decorations of a Christmas tree are only tied on, whereas fruit grows on a fruit tree, unquote. That's true enough. In Jesus, there's wisdom. In Jesus, there's wealth. In Jesus, we can worship. In Jesus, we can welcome God. What do you want for Christmas? Everything that you could possibly want you already possess. 
Jesus is wonderful in his ability to save. Jesus is wonderful in his ability to save. Imagine that you had the ability to ask for anything and it was yours. What would you ask for? Would your prayers just simply be spent on you? Is it possible that you could ask for the one thing that you need the most? It's interesting to me that God prepared his gift before you even knew you needed a gift. 700 years before Jesus ever shows up. And every generation, people would know that they would need not just a Savior, but a wonderful Savior. And there is perhaps no greater testimony than the one you should be able to give. You know how I know that Jesus saves people? Because he saved me. He saved me. Nothing is more convincing. Nothing is more persuasive than a personal experience with Jesus. Vance Havner said, Christmas is based on an exchange of gifts. The gift of God to man, his son. And the gift of man to God, when we first give ourselves to God. Receive him by grace. Trust him through faith. And so, we begin our journey to Bethlehem. We're going to keep our appointment with the child who is born to the son who is given. We're going to answer the call of wisdom and we're going to bow the knee in worship to the prince of peace who is in fact the king forever. I'll see you next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we cry out to you. Lord, it makes perfect sense that we would want wisdom. Lord, we want insight on how best to answer the questions that people have about what it means to live in this world and what it means that this world is so broken. Lord, even our unbelieving family and friends are usually willing to, to concede that they live in a, in, in a world and that that world is broken. Most of them are willing to concede that something has gone horribly, terribly wrong. There's just confusion and division over how to fix it. So Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace and strength and mercy to tell the truth, to tell the gospel story, to repeat it in winsome ways over and over again until some believe and they experience what I've experienced, peace with God, reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sin and hope for the future. 
And so, Lord, prepare our hearts to give what people need the most. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand here.